Tracy Durfelt is an insurance expert who runs the Nationwide Contractors Alliance and also Wise Insure. Tracy joins us today to talk about some very serious topics on the insurance front. These are topics that even after 10 years in building, I myself did not fully understand. And unfortunately, in our completely litigious society today, if you don't have good insurance, the consequences can be dire. And truth be told, we all work too hard for our families and our clients to let silly things that just lie in the fine print put it all at risk. So that's why this topic is so vitally important. And I'm confident that everyone is going to learn at least one important thing. Before we begin, a little more on Tracy. Tracy's company offers full-spectrum risk management and risk transfer solutions to the construction industry and their insurance agents. He currently serves on NAHB's Construction Defect and Building Materials Committee and on NAHB's Construction Health and Safety Committee. Now, I was introduced to Tracy through Doug Lynch, who's an agent in Austin, and I've gotten to know Doug as a highly educated professional who truly knows his stuff. And I've also come to appreciate that there are huge differences between agents in the liability insurance industry. All that said, in full disclosure, I'm very much considering switching my business to Doug and Tracy at the time of this recording. We don't yet have a business relationship, but we're in discussions and I am not getting paid for this episode, but I would truly want to put it out there as a public service. And for that reason, I want to be transparent on the possible future relationship. One other thing before we begin, be sure to follow us on Instagram at building optimal and also be sure you are signed up for our periodic email through our homepage at buildingoptimal.com. Buckle up for a mentally exhausting yet critically important episode. Enjoy. So Tracy, insuring home builders, you say is a niche segment, which to me means that opportunities abound to hire someone who's a bad option. Where do you go to look for a good builder's insurance agent and how do you know when you found them? Well, there's a couple of things, Jared. Um, one, are they giving back to the industry? Are they committed to residential construction, construction in general? And you can demonstrate that as an insurance agent by being involved in your local home builders association. Involved may be more than just being a member. It typically involves being involved in their education programs, involved in uh, some of their government affairs programs. What are they doing to give back? is the highest form of commitment. Many times, larger agencies uh, work as a team and there's advantages and disadvantages to that. Um, The team typically has the charmer, uh, the glad handers, somebody who makes the the builder or the contractor feel comfortable, but the real experts, the people that know stuff are behind the scenes. Sometimes that model will work for the very large contractors, but the more typical home builder, you're going to be dealing with a smaller agency 
who not only advertises construction, but has good referrals, understands how to explain coverage, asks you good questions about coverage. Uh, that's what's in a good agent. Okay. And I'll add a little color to that myself, which is that even with that, there are still additional traps that you've got to run because I, I know of a builder that insurer that comes to my mind right now that is active in, in some local organizations, but is not, in my opinion, the, the best option. So it seems like there are all different kinds of ways that you can get misled into the wrong agent in this business. Well, you're absolutely right. And when you look at uh, those agencies that have an established footprint, as I described, you need to process to compare agencies as opposed to just looking at one that might fit the criteria I just mentioned, but where you have multiple agents fitting that criteria. And then when you're looking at them as opposed to the product, that's a different measure. What kinds of questions are you being asked? How many different carriers can they or do they represent in the most critical areas of coverage? Are they just bringing up the bare necessities as you see it, or are they talking about coverages uh, that you really should be aware of and be making choices about? That usually would be an additional filter that would work, but again, that's looking at two or three agents um, maybe every three or four years just to make sure that you have the right agent in the right agency. Well, uh, along these same lines, you know, I always thought that insurance was just insurance and they were all the same. And it turns out that was idiotic thinking on my part. And I can say from personal experience that there are huge gaps between different insurance carriers. Some of them, it seems like will make your life miserable in the, you know, the unfortunate event of a claim while some will from personal experience step up and, and truly act as a partner taking care of their obligation. Mm-hmm. So to continue on this vein of thought, how do you possibly parse out these bad carriers from the good ones? And I guess I'm looking for specifics, like where can we really get this information? The world has changed and it's a good thing. Um, many times in my recent history, in the last 15 to my 30 years, I've told people to go online and research the insurance carrier. Many times there are, believe it or not, Yelp reviews of insurance carriers. Uh, That part is there. Some, unfortunately, would like to say, hey, we're members of the Better Business Bureau. Some agencies have said that too. And that's not necessarily a measure I subscribe to because all that does is talk about addressing complaints, not resolving them favorably toward the consumer, just addressing complaints. So that bar is not a high one, but you get some pretty honest reviews out there. Uh, That's a measure. The official measure is what kind of litigation have they been through and what kind of insurance commissioner or department of insurance complaints have been seen about that carrier. And that is available when you look at the insurance commissioner or department of insurance website there is always an archive of complaints. And you can see which carrier is showing up more than not. And then if it's on the line, on the web, you can see many of the more prominent lawsuits where the insurance carrier was resisting a claim and 
you can judge whether the claim resistance was trivial or, or just being pissy as opposed to, you know, them really standing on, on a leg that they should stand on. I mean, sometimes, you know, homeowners and, and builders uh, want more coverage than they bought and they sue over it. But more times than not, you're dealing with insurance carriers who are just trying to weasel out of a claim. And those lawsuits are, are generally available online. Uh, but also your attorney can do what's called a Lexus Nexus search on a carrier and find out some of the, the less public lawsuits. Okay. And I'll add something into the mix and that is take really good notes in this episode and get your list of questions together. And when you know what you're asking them, when you're interviewing potential insurers, a lot of this stuff is going to come to light. Mm-hmm. So there's my... Not to interrupt, but yeah. there's one thing I almost forgot. Um, many of the carriers out there are very proud of their A rating. Okay, in home building, A minus is typical. A plus is very unusual for a carrier to go into residential home building. At that point in time, you have to kind of wonder why are they that financially strong. We have to remember that the ability to pay a claim ten years from now is very important. Absolutely. And many times uh, that rating is just an indicator of, hey, are they solvent? Are they running a business like they could be or can be solvent in the future? Those are important questions. It may also look to, hey, are they that solvent because they're charging a high price and providing good coverage? Or are they providing a cheap price, an A-rated carrier? Then you got to say, well, where's the give here? You can't be A-rated and the cheapest on the market. It just doesn't logically make sense. So always keep in mind that insurance ratings are important, and your agent can certainly discuss that importance with you, but you, re- you want to raise the question, if this company is so strong and their policies are so cheap, what am I giving up? Actually, reminds me of the building business as a whole. You get what you pay for, largely. So. Lowest bidder is the one you're, you're careful of. <laughs> exactly. All right. L- let's get into some of the details then. Sure. So you've talked to me in the past about this admitted preferred versus non-admitted insurer, mm-hmm. which is a foreign language to me. So can you explain to us what the difference is between those two and, and why we as builders need to know them? Absolutely. In a construction defect state, as I call it, and Texas is one of them, for example, where the insurance carriers are are wary, they're being careful. Um, This would compare differently, say, for example, to South Dakota, maybe, where construction defect and the California plaintiff's attorneys haven't really onboarded into the state and and started making life uh, painful. When we look at admitted carriers in a non-construction defect state, it means that you have a very good package. Wisconsin's a great example. You have a couple carriers there where the local carrier is knowingly providing good coverage at an affordable rate because they understand the local laws are relatively friendly to builders. And although the the homeowner's rights are, are, are certainly present in statute, you're not seeing them exploited as a money machine. So in that context, in a a less painful state, admitted preferred, is typically a really good option. Unfortunately, though, I've seen many carriers advertised as admitted preferred in a construction defect state, in a, in a more painful state, 
like Texas, like California or Nevada. And there's some implication that the insurance commissioner would never approve an insurer as admitted if there were exclusions of note. And boy, there are a ton of exclusions in the admitted carriers, mostly uh, when you go to a construction defect state. We'll get into some of those exclusions, but the advantage of insurance commissioner or Department of Insurance Review has very little to do with consumer protection up front. It has everything to do with, is this insurance company coming into the state with a product where they will not jeopardize their solvency? That's the key question of adequate rate and form when we file an insurance product to be admitted. To get that admitted slash preferred label is all about saying, hey, we're going to be solvent if we come into the state with these rates and these forms. Does this sound familiar from our prior conversation? You're going to have an admitted carrier. It's going to be demonstrably solvent, and they may be cheap. What are you giving up? So it's the one label that can be somewhat misleading if you're not careful. Yes, there are protections. A guarantee fund of $100,000 is available in many states uh, where you're admitted preferred if you become insolvent. And you get to typically enjoy audits, premium audits that go both up and down And there's some advantages, again, in the premium side, but unfortunately, there has been an implication of advantage on the coverage side and in a construction defect state, I have found that largely to be untrue. By contrast, to be fair, you've asked about non-admitted or surplus line companies. They are not regulated by the commissioner from a filing and rate point of view, but they certainly are regulated by conduct. So every insurance company in a state, whether it be admitted, preferred, or non-admitted excess and surplus line is regulated for claims conduct, okay? That means is that is that insurer interpreting and upholding the contract between themselves and the consumer uh, the way that they said they would? Are they bargaining in good faith at the time of claim? So no matter what kind of carrier you are, you're going to be subject to insurance commissioner or department of insurance oversight, whether you're non-admitted or admitted or preferred or surplus line, it's still got oversight. When we look at our job in the distribution system of insurance, we're supposed to look at admitted options first, which we do. But if there is a coverage issue, we are supposed to look at uh, non-admitted excess and surplus line because it coverages just as important, if not more important, than insurance regulator oversight of rate and form. For example, many admitted carriers will exclude subsidence and earth movement. Many times in a construction defect state, the only source of liability coverage for that kind of problem is going to be non-admitted. So you'd be looking at both options as a builder and evaluating which one is best. If I'm hearing you correctly, If you're in a non-construction defect state, this conversation is a little less important. If you are in a construction defect state, which step one, figure out whether you are or you aren't, Mm -hmm. then you need to be a little more cautious with this admitted 
preferred carrier because you're going to have more exclusions. Yeah. Is that a, is that a, that's a valid statement? That's a fair summary. Very rarely are the admitteds in a construction defect state providing all the same coverage, uh, coverages available in residential construction. Um, you know, caveat commercial construction, uh, they play hard, they play well, but it's in residential that you and I are talking about, and it's a more difficult area. And I could, Jared, provide you a list of those construction defect states that would be accurate at the time of this posting. Yeah, I think that would be helpful because, you know, I don't know about all of our listeners, but I mean, for me personally, I all this stuff I'd never known until recently, and that's 10 years in the business. So that's on me, nobody else. But, you know, it's stuff that you don't sit around talking about uh, at the table <laughs> at night. So, okay. Um, you, you also say that um, a comprehensive list of paperwork between the builder and his trade partner is critical. For instance, my understanding is that you say just a copy of the trade partner's insurance certificate isn't enough. So what exactly do we need to be getting from our trade partners? Well, there's a, a difference between being audit ready and claims ready. Audit ready is when the insurance company's auditor, is, you're a home builder and your insurance company says, hey, I want to make sure that you're getting certificates from your, your trade partners. Well, that certificate has the word endeavor. The certificate has many disclaimers on it. So it's not really a grant of coverage. And that can become very problematic at the time of claim. Some builders I know, the, the larger ones, require not only a certificate, um, but a full copy of the original policy and then endorsements specific to the subcontract that references the insurance requirements. That's claims ready. Presuming that policy of the trade partner doesn't have a residential exclusion or limitation. I've seen excavators and pool contractors, below ground pool contractors with earth movement exclusions. I mean, you wouldn't guess or know that if you had a certificate with all the additional insured endorsements. The only way to know that is to look at the policy and say, is there an exclusion? And your agent as a builder should either be willing to do that with their staff or point you to an organization that does more than just certificate tracking but actually provides for claims readiness. And, and the point is that the, the certificate is not going to illuminate these exclusions. You've got to get your hands on a copy of the policy itself, these exclusions. Correct. And additionally, we need to understand, and I had a builder just yesterday talking to my agent about this, that being claims ready means that you're not being ready to turn the claim into your insurance company as a home builder. and consequentially, you get to pay higher premiums or lose your insurance later if you use it too much. But you're actually prepared to file a claim directly on the sub and their insurance company. Yeah. And, and so by doing that, you protect your claims history. And at the same time, you're making sure that the subcontractor trade partner is accountable for what they may have goofed up. That's very important. Many times the trade partners will act with impunity and say, I'm too valuable. You'll never file a claim against me or I'll stop working for you. Being up honest, Jared, you know, that is, a, is an objection that comes up about 10% of the time. 
as far as them digging in and saying, if you file this claim, I'm not working for you. Well, uh, you tell me, isn't it good to have a backup trade partner on all of your trades, at least one, and uh, make sure that you can't be leveraged like that, much less if they just decided to stop work and ask for more money. It's the same thing. You've got to have adequate insurance. Yeah, and, and to me, it really goes back to if there's an issue, you try to assign responsibility to the correct party and everything else is secondary and subsequent to that, whether it's your only trade partner or, or not. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's too ideological, but that's my opinion at least. Mm-hmm. This raises a bunch of issues in, in my mind I want to talk about before we move on. So please, you're saying this, this is a ton of work to go not only get the insurance certificate, but also the, the policy and then your, your base agreement with your trade partner that you should have with every trade partner mm-hmm. and then review it. And what you're saying is that a good insurance agent. So this is another thing I'm keying in on in terms of trying to determine who is your best insurance agent, quite possibly somebody that will take all of these documents and put the onus on themselves to review it mm-hmm. because you guys know a lot more what to look for than we do as builders. So I'm keying in on that as, as another thing to look for with your agent. But point is, that's a ton of work that an agent is doing on behalf of their client. But it sounds like it sounds like it's necessary to put the subcontractor's insurance as the first line of defense in the event of something. And that way you save your own general liability as second line of defense. Is that a proper assessment? Yes, that's absolutely correct. Few agencies will actually do the work, they'll farm it out, and you work out a deal with them as to how that goes. But the inability to do that is a symptom of an agent who is reluctant to do anything but sell you insurance and enjoy a commission. I mean, good agents um, provide risk management tools so you can reduce the risk and at the same time transfer the risk via insurance. So if you're not reducing the risk to your situation, uh, then you're paying full boat for the insurance, either now or later. This is a key tool. Transferring the risk to the trade partners the way they agreed to in the insurance contract is what's supposed to be, but usually isn't well done. It's really, really important uh, when we deal with uh, homeowner insurer subrogation claims. Those are horrible types of claims where State Farm or Farmers Insurance or other organizations that didn't want to be advertised, but to their credit, everybody has this, what's called a subrogation unit. So the, the homeowner files a claim. It could be a, an extensive water damage claim. The insurance carrier for the homeowner does a great job cleaning it up and making it right, but then turns around and hands the builder the bill saying, this is because of, of you. And there's no warranty that addresses that because the insurer it's kind of acting outside of the warranty, and and many times uh, the trade is going to be a very important source for trades. We're going to be very important sources of defense in the event of that kind of claim that comes out of nowhere. So many builders have said, hey, I can handle this all through my warranty program or my customer service program. The trade insurance isn't so important. And I think that there's no one tool a builder can use that will solve all problems. But this one is a crucial part of a multiple tool solution. What about, I'm 
sitting here thinking about all of these trade partners we've had for years and going back to them and asking them, you know, we've got just our certificate and going back and asking them now to provide us a copy of their policy. I'm sure you guys deal with that. How do you typically approach that? Do you ever have issues with it? <laughs> well, I have a firm that does this kind of work and we've been doing it for seven years. We've worked with thousands of trades. I can tell you the numbers. All right. Builders need to know the numbers aren't near as bad as their imagination would make them think. So four out of five trades willingly provide what's being asked for. And it's not really the trade that's providing it. It's their insurance agent. Of the remaining one in five trades, you're dealing with delay, agent issues being nice, or somebody being a stick in the mud. Now, the stick in the mud only happens roughly two or three percent of the time. Okay. So where four out of five of your trade partners are volunteering the necessary documents uh, to be verified and to build that claims ready file within say 60 days of the request, you're going to have one in five that are going to drag their feet, but eventually you're going to have a resolution one way or the other. And most times it's favorable to the builder. Those are the real numbers. Again, that's based on thousands of these files being ready. It's really not the trade that provides most of the resistance, it can be their insurance agent. The trades insurance agent or organization sometimes may have gotten caught with selling a residential exclusion policy or may simply just not have a a service team able to help. So, I mean, it's just the laws of numbers, but it's not resistance from the trade as much as from the insurance industry that's providing coverage for the trades that ultimately ends up being that you know, two or three out of a hundred problem. So it's well worth it. It's not as hard to get the documents. The difficult part that builders, I think, fail to understand is it really takes a licensed agent who knows something about construction insurance to review the documents. That's a a little tougher step. But builders, again, uh, as you pointed out, Jared, will have an agent who will either do it or provide the resources uh, via third party by which it can be done. What about architects, by the way? Do you recommend that builders take particular steps with architects and engineers? Maybe it differs from trade partners. There is a big, big difference. Well, first of all, we're going to get to coverage loopholes. And builders don't have typically access to professional liability coverage. So as a result, if their architect or engineer makes an error, their general liability policy won't cover them. That's the first reason you'd want to bring that topic up is that's potentially a big hole. The kind of insurance that architects and engineers buy, generally an additional insured designation is very difficult, very, very difficult because that policy wasn't developed or originally designed to provide that. But you'd want to know that they have proof of that kind of coverage and then you'd want to really look at your contract uh, with an architect or engineer many times they're using a template uh, that's called an aia template and that simply restricts your ability to recover financially from their mistake to the extent that you paid them so if you've paid five thousand dollars in architect fees uh, and they really goof up a you know a recommendation on the materials used you can only get five grand out of them. And so the insurer of the architect will abide by the AIA contract or try to enforce it as well. So it's a 
it's an exercise in looking out for what kind of contract uh, you have, assuming you do have one. And then if they have a contract that doesn't have that kind of limitation, making sure that you have a proof of insurance. That's the ideal world. Many architects and engineers don't carry professional liability insurance. And to me, uh, it's a builder's choice as to how they want to manage that situation. We've figured out how to get professional liability for builders done. But most agencies, both in your home state of Texas and throughout the country, uh, will be well challenged, very well challenged to try to find that kind of insurance for a builder. So finding it from the architect and engineer is probably the, the more likely. Let's talk about provisions of insurance contracts a little. Okay. There's a big distinction between an occurrence-based and claims-made policy. What do we need to know between those two? Um, first of all, know that your insurance agent is going to have just as much of a challenge really understanding it as you will. It's very confusing. and Sometimes it's easier to simply explain that claims made is unacceptable. Reason being that you have to both have the insurance in place at the time of claim and make the claim at the time you have the insurance in place. And that can be really difficult if you have a work that was performed prior to the policy uh, that causes problems later. It can also cause problems when you stop buying that insurance and opt for a different kind and turn around and realize that you voided your coverage under the claims made situation. It's a merry-go-round. It's unacceptable. Another kind of policy form may look like an occurrence policy, which is what we do want to advocate, but they use a definition called manifest. You do a word search on your policy and you see the word manifest, you have a question or two for your agent. Because the manifest basically says you have to have seen or noticed the claim while the policy was in force. It has to manifest during the occurrence period or the policy period. That can be very difficult for the builder. So those are the two things to watch out for, claims made and manifest uh, definition in any form. A straight occurrence form is harder to find these days. It is the dominant form still, but it is something to make sure that you have. What about prior work exclusions? What do we need to know about that? That's a big deal. If it is a true prior work exclusion, Jared, let's say, hey, you may even have the same agent. You may even have the same insurance carrier, but your renewal or your insurance alternative at that time says you have prior work exclusion. Well, I'm building all this work now. Uh, the other policies will cover my prior work. I don't need a policy that covers both, do I? And I'll point to an occurrence policy will say you have to have an occurrence during the policy period. I like using the fat man in the bathtub example. Policies contemplate both if they don't have a prior work exclusion of the two examples I'll give you. Fat man sits in a bathtub on the second floor, okay? And he notices that after three, four years of using this bathtub, something doesn't smell right. And he has a remodeler tear open the floor and apparently uh, the bathtub had a piping problem and there was a slow leak. And of course it caused the floor rot and he had to tear out the floor. When did that occur? In many jurisdictions, the insurance world says that occurred 
upon installation. That started when the pipe first leaked, and that's likely due to an improper installation. That's how the plaintiff's attorney will look. That's a, a, you know, a slow, easy claim, and that goes back to the policy that you bought as a builder when you installed the bathtub, and now that is what everybody thinks. Unfortunately, if the fat man gets up in the bathtub one summer and he falls through the floor, that's an occurrence, okay? And it may have been initially caused by a bad installation, but the occurrence causing the fat man bodily injury, causing all the property damage, clearly was four years after the policy that was in place at the time he installed the bathtub. So with that in mind, you can have a void in coverage for some very severe types of claims. A less colorful, more typical example are weather-driven events. You have a named windstorm, and it causes a ton of water damage from wind-blown rain. We can say that is the occurrence. Even though the installation may have been flawed, the occurrence happened in many jurisdictions at the time of that weather event, or it could be an earth movement event, or it can be a, any number of things that are occurrences long after the close of escrow on the home. Okay. You don't want to have that excluded by a prior work exclusion. There is a variation, and I think many agents misunderstand it. Uh, it's not a, a severe a limitation, but most policies have this, it's called a continuous and progressive limitation or a prior property damage exclusion. And the intent of that for most insurance companies is to make sure that you're dealing with one policy, one claim, so that you don't have a relatively sophisticated plaintiff's attorney going after four or five policies because they forgot to put that limitation in. And what I mean by that is sometimes an occurrence is alleged to be continuous. It's alleged to be taking place over three years, like that slow leak in the bathtub situation I mentioned earlier that caused the rotting floor. Well, if it occurred upon installation, that's the policy that should pay, not necessarily each of the subsequent policies. Uh, and that's what that continuous and progressive limitation is intending to do is limit one policy, one claim. Now, at the same time, is it a good thing to have that? <laughs> no, but it's hard to find policies without it. It's not near as severe as an absolute prior work exclusion, which can be a big problem. Okay. That fat man example, fortunately, is going to be a hard example to forget. <laughs> it's effective, though. It's into my mind. It's not easy to forget a windstorm either, but the fat man definitely <laughs> will. You can probably say, hey, this is a fat man example moving forward. Yeah, you, you, so. need, to, you need to claim authorship of that. <laughs> okay. So that was actually my next question question. I wanted to get into some of the prior work exclusions, but I, I mean, I think you just hit on the most common. Are there any others that are coming to mind that you want to point out? Oh, goodness, yes. Um, when we look at uh, per claim versus per occurrence deductible, for example, many builders don't understand that difference and maybe their agents don't either. But when you have you know, 32 uh, homes in a development and you have one event, you know, your deductible times 32 is different than your deductible. It can have tremendous impact on, on the claim settlement. So that's one thing to watch out for. Other exclusions 
you've heard me mention subsidence or earth movement. That's not just about earthquakes. That can be uh, underground water causing the sinkhole or, or the, the hill slide by the creek uh, or simply settling of the home given expansive soils. That exclusion is at a minimum a $35,000 expense for a minor type of claim of that nature for the builder on just one home. And if, if you have a whole subdivision that is affected by what could be construed as earth movement, that's an issue. Let's keep in mind that there's plenty of litigation out there that suggests no matter what the cause of the earth movement, for example, water could cause the earth to move. One could argue that, hey, it was water that caused the, the earth movement, therefore it's water is not excluded. That's not true. Anytime the word earth movement is used in the sequence of events, you may have a denied claim if you have that kind of exclusion. It's a biggie. Um, many builders need to just find that one as unacceptable. Another exclusion or limitation involves your subs. Many carriers will penalize you at the time of claim or, or audit for having an uninsured or an underinsured sub. Uninsured sub is self-explanatory, and uh, many claims are both denied or subject to a higher deductible, or you're dealing with a very expensive audit rate on an uninsured sub. Let me define underinsured sub. That's when the limits aren't meeting the policy's requirements of the builder. Many policies out there do require the trades to carry limits equal to or greater than that of the builder. That's a difficult exclusion. We already know that builders are challenged by tracking the policies that the, the trade partners have. But the, the additional uh, restriction on un and underinsured in the event of claim makes that even more important or you simply should not accept that exclusion. Um, the injury to a subcontractor's employee on the job site is a big one, especially if you're in a, a state where work comp is optional, as is your home state of Texas. But even if you're not in a state like that, uh, we call these action overclaims in many situations, and those can be catastrophic. We had a client whose electrician fell off a ladder and was paralyzed for life. Fortunately, that was somebody who had claims ready file, and the electrician's policy did not have the action over exclusion, neither did the builders. And so there was adequate coverage for that situation. But that type of limitation or exclusion is something to look for and certainly to watch out for. There can be other relevant exclusions depending on the type of construction that you perform. In the insurance industry, we look at remodeling, custom homes, tract, townhome, and condo all very differently. And I also feel that the insurance industry doesn't necessarily define them the same way uh, you would as a builder, making it even more difficult. When you have a residential limitation or exclusion, pay careful attention to that because the insurer may misunderstand what you're doing as something that would otherwise be excluded. A great example are uh, single family homes as compared to zero lot line townhomes. Both could be construed as the same or the carrier could simply exclude the townhomes regardless because they have a townhome condominium exclusion. These types of exclusions based on a type of work are very, very important to pay attention to. 
Um, we see that both in the trades policies, but notably some builders policies will only let you build so many homes, only certain kinds of homes, or exclude most of what you already do, and yet it provided limits for the certificate, but at the time of claim, maybe disappointing. It's a pretty thorough list. I'm sure there's more. Oh, there is one big one. There's a couple. Sorry, there's so many, Jared. Professional liability, we touched on that. So if the builder is a, a custom builder and doing design build work, the plaintiff's allegation can be such that it's not the installation or the materials used that failed, it was the design. Well, that's a big exclusion. Or it could be that the weight load wasn't calculated correctly on the deck. Otherwise, it was built fine. <laughs> but when it collapsed and killed a bunch of people, it was a, an engineering flaw. So I, that's a big exclusion. Again, the professional liability aspect. Another, though, uh, the scarier one that's on the horizon is cyber uh, smart home liability. When we look at our digital age, everybody that's buying a home these days is going to want something eventually that's smart, whether it be the TV, the entertainment center, or typically the security system or the thermostat. People want to control this stuff with their smartphone. Uh, they want to be able to look in on their, their kid, the baby monitor. And if you're involved in either retrofitting a home with smart devices or you're uh, selling a smart package uh, as an upsell as a builder, um, there is no coverage for that. Uh, in the event somebody holds the homeowner's data hostage because the passwords weren't kept up to date or the software patch wasn't downloaded or the person who installed it went rogue and left the back door in and opened up the security systems for a break-in later. I mean, pretty scary stuff, but it's happening every day. Smart homes are attacked um, by bots or these software programs 3,800 times a day. And then the builder, their data is wide open right now too. Though. All the general liability policies I've seen exclude data-related type of issues. So the builder may have a computer or a smartphone connected to the internet. If it's hacked, like today we learned about the Capital One data breach, you don't have to be Capital One or the city of Atlanta to be breached. It's happening to builders all the time. And some of the requirements in certain states are really onerous when consumer data is involved and the builder has no coverage for the expenses of cleaning up the mess, uh, the hardware that was affected that may never be recovered, the extortion of the Bitcoin in the event that the builder's data is held hostage. By our estimates, if the builders figured out general liability and they've been claims-free for five years and they know the formula, that's awesome. It's that builder that's going to be three times more likely to have a cyber or smart home-related claim and we aren't seeing the policies being sold, much less the exclusions are so huge you could drive a bus through them. So those are the major exclusion areas I feel could be looked at. The insurance carriers, I apologize for my industry, will always come up with new exclusions. So as of the date of the show, those are the big ones. But there's going to be more, and I can't see them coming until they happen. Yeah, and the thing that happens with me, to be completely candid, I sit here and I listen to you talking. This is mind-numbing stuff. No offense, because I know the insurance is necessary, but for me as a builder, it's completely mind-numbing. And, and I honestly start hearing all of this stuff, and I want to to tune out and just say, here, you as my insurance agent, 
you guys figure it out. Handle it. But I don't think that's a good strategy. I think that we have to have a certain level of base education and go through some of the pain to really understand what you're telling us. Because the thing is, it, it doesn't matter until it does. Mm-hmm. And when it does matter, when something happens, if you're underinsured, if you're poorly insured, if you have a little mistake in your policy or in one of your trade partner's policies with one of these little minuscule exclusions that you would never typically look for, it can be a life-changing experience. Mm-hmm. Not even to oversell it. It really can, which is why this is so important. Well, hopefully we're bringing the hay down where the goats can eat it because I, I try not to be technical on a show like yours, Jared, but it's really important that we take the hour, hour and a half to listen through this, assess and evaluate and figure it out. Insurance companies are probably not much different than banks. They only lend money to the people who don't need it. Okay. So if you're a builder and you're in a pretty high risk business, they're going to be very reluctant to provide good coverage, just like a banker is going to look at a business loan for somebody who's just starting up a really complex business. Uh, so insurance companies are, are in the game to make money. They can have reputation, maybe something they want to protect, and that's why you can trust them to that extent. But ultimately, they all share the need to make money and a very good return on that money is necessary to support all their expenses. So that's just the reality. Some builders say, ah, screw it, I'm not going to buy any insurance. If they can and they get away with it, that's fine. Sometimes, uh, you know, when when we look at uh, one of the other major exclusions, I didn't mention because it's just so far out there, I can't believe that still use it. But when somebody provides a builder an insurance policy and all subcontracted work is excluded, right? That's a little different. That CG2294, which is an industry form, so I'm allowed to say it, is crazy. Why would anybody sell a policy that excludes what the builder does? But the builders look at it and they say, I get my certificate, right? My bank is happy. My investors are happy. I didn't pay much for this. I'm good. Well, if a builder knowingly does that, that's fine. That is a choice. Um, I've worked with builders. I had one very dominant builder here in Seattle at one time tell me there's four reason builders buy insurance. They buy it. Number one reason typically for the certificate. Number two reason is to make sure that they can get their license or their loan. Number three reason for the defense. It may not be covered, but the cost of the lawyer to defend the claim is important to them. And then the last reason that any builder buys insurance apparently is coverage. This is a cynical fella. And he was a very sophisticated buyer of insurance. But he he was honest with me. He said, these are the four reasons in that order most builders buy it. And that's relatable. I mean, I understand why builders are frustrated because on the front end, that sounds like you. That sounds cool. That's wonderful. You're saving money. You're being real about the insurance industry and all its exclusions. And that can be a conscious strategy. And it's not unacceptable. It's just something where if you have that catastrophic claim or claims, you need to be aware that. Once you've made that choice, you can't unmake the choice. Um, Insurance contracts are very proven documents. And so challenging an exclusion or challenging the agent's errors and omissions policy, not as easy as you think. 
It takes a lot of money to challenge a big, bad insurance company. So getting it right up front, if you want real coverage, is very important. One of my last questions I was going to ask you is what your top advice to builders is, but I think I want to reframe that. I'm curious what time and time again you see as the biggest mistake builders make. Mm. All of them. <laughs> so uh, that, That's depressing. Yeah. No, they, well, I think it's they don't take the time. All right. I, I'll go to the root cause of the mistake instead of the mistake itself. Because it, the mistakes can come under various situations. And, and they're not the only kinds of business owners that make mistakes with insurance. I mean, it's tricky stuff. But like any business owner, builders uh, need to take the time to understand what they're buying and as importantly, why they're buying it and then from whom they're buying it. And builders you know, are all overextended. I get that. So is your insurance agent. Okay. Keep that in mind. They're, they're picking up the phone. They're responding to an email. They're texting back and they don't have, you know, a lot of extra time to learn stuff. Well, could you imagine building a home, not knowing how to drywall? About the same thing. I mean, I, I would assume a builder has done a little bit of each of the trades to know whether that trade was uh, doing it correctly or not. I couldn't imagine uh, the insurance being any less important than any one of your trade partners. So taking that kind of time to reach at least some degree of mastery and something so crucial with a litigious environment is really the key. So not taking the time to understand, gather the information that's necessary to evaluate and or apply a selection process as to from whom you're buying the insurance and the insurance carrier and the policy. Without all that, you may be making a mistake. But do you have to do it every year? Not necessarily. Is it worth it? Yes. I've always suggested that people really take a hard look at their insurance every three to four years. Times change. The builder's business has changed. The insurance environment has changed or both have changed. And Every three to four years, getting re-educated as to what insurance is to a builder uh, is an exercise that might be bearable. Every year is very difficult. I wouldn't want to learn how to build a home every year. So I get it. You, you can be a little extended, but you need to make the time on that crucial part of your business every so often. Tracy, where do we find you? Everywhere. Uh, <laughs> I, have a, I have a website. I think that's the best thing to do. You can see a, an education center. We call it a learning center. And I, I try to give back many ways, uh, education being one of them. My organization, my umbrella organization is called the Nationwide Contractors Alliance. We've been an active member participant in, in some form of leadership at National Association of Home Builders now for over 10 years. The website is nwcalliance.com, and you'll see across the tabs, Learning Center. In the Learning Center, we, we have uh, insurance snippets, we'll call it chapters. It's not accredited. It's not designation-driven. It's simply basic knowledge about insurance, uh, whether it be general liability insurance, how warranty interacts, selection of subcontractors and their paperwork arbitration mediation, uh, but it also has an extensive section on cyber and smart home because people really don't know about that as much so. Uh, we also have a section on builder's risk. Nuances there are tremendous as well. We didn't get a chance to talk about how exclusion J and your general liability policy 
doesn't cover anything until after the home is done and paid for. And believe it or not, Jared, you and I know what builder's risk is. I know you know you buy it. Some builders feel their general liability policy covers builder's risk-related items. And so we educate to that in our website. That's how you find me. And you'll find, uh, Jared, that I work through local agents all over the country. Um, I met you through Doug Lynch. Yeah, he's one of my local agents in Texas that cares, demonstrates a partnership attitude, certainly wants to educate and tries to sell quality coverage. That's the kind of agent I like to partner with. It's kind of the agent builders most often want to buy from. We don't have an agent locator on our website. I can just simply say we'll take a call from any builder, listen to them, try to help them. And then if they they want to pursue a business relationship through one of our agents, we're happy to refer them. But uh, we're just here to help. And so you can go get hopefully something of use at that website. Yeah. And I just want to say that I'm not receiving any compensation from Tracy or from my insurance agent, Doug, for uh, having you guys on or for saying this. So this is completely objective when I say that you guys have both been a tremendous help. Doug is a fantastic agent. You are a, a, a savant of the industry. And I want to take a second just to thank you for your dedication to the insurance craft, because there aren't many people who really uh, dedicate themselves to what they do the way I've seen you do it. And it results in a tremendous value that you offer your clients. And the older I get, the more I realize uh, the value in aligning with people who are true artisans of what they do, truly dedicated to bettering themselves with it every day. So thank you, thank you for that. This was incredibly enlightening, this episode. It's uh, 10 34 a.m. here in Austin, Texas, as we're recording this. And I still think I'm going to go have a drink, though, after we get off the phone. <laughs> I'm meeting with a retired builder here in about a half an hour, Jared. He's a big-time Rotarian, and I'm a Rotarian, and we both believe in service above self. And so we're, we're catching up on a few things. But I'm probably one of the few insurance uh, executives that pals around with builders more than insurance people. <laughs> that sounds dangerous. <laughs> I know. It is, man. And I don't know if we're being recorded, but, yeah. you know, I, I think I mentioned to you in my whiskey club and such, and I've, I've done fundraisers for Build Pack, and I have a lot of fun with construction people because it's, it's more relevant to everybody. Insurance is relevant, but it's really not cocktail conversation. But when we talk about what's going on in, in home building, that's exciting. Uh, and so that's probably one of the motivations for me to pay so much attention is that, you know, if, if we lose home building because of, you know, a litigious environment, I mean, we almost are losing health care because of litigation. I, I just don't want to see that affect uh, home building the same way. I think it's very preventable. And insurance is a small component to preventing it or offsetting it, but there's so much that can be done. Agreed. So, well, again, Tracy, thank you. Thanks so much, Jerry.